असतो मद्गमय तमसो मोतिर्गमय मृत्युर्मात गमय ओ शाति 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 हरि ओ Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om peace, peace, peace. So we are studying the Drik Drishya Viveka, and over the past. few classes we have seen the six techniques of meditation in advaita vedanta the practice consists of the words are shravana manana nididhyasana hearing which means a systematic study of the vedanta under a competent teacher and reflection using reasoning to grasp what we have studied and then we have nididhyasana which is meditation which is a, an attempt to absorb the truths which we have studied and grasped now it is this third stage nididhyasana where we have the six techniques in this book the six techniques if uh, you recollect they are three internal and three external the three internal techniques being the first technique is using an object to become aware of the of the witness consciousness using an object a thought a thought to become aware of the witness consciousness the second and then next what you do is use a a vedantic text to to stabilize the awareness of yourself as the witness consciousness and you drop the object the thought and finally both the object and the vedantic text are dropped and one will slide or glide into the nirvikalpaka stage the third and the deepest stage of internal samadhi external samadhi since brahman is everywhere in any object that we experience externally brahman should be available to us and indeed brahman is available to us everywhere as existence brahman appears as the existence of being um brahman which is sat chit ananda existence absolute consciousness absolute and bliss absolute that existence absolute or pure existence pure existence is appearing to us as the existence of the things of the world everything that we experience is experienced as existing you know the microphone exists the table exists the people exist the room exists so this existence which we experience indubitably everywhere we never pay attention to it but advaita says it is the reflection of pure existence in the various things of the world so um it is this which we seek to focus upon ignoring the name and the form we seek to focus upon the existence which we experience in everything 
And once we focus on this, then we drop the object and take up a Vedantic text. Use that to stabilize our awareness in the existence which we experience everywhere. And finally, as we slide or glide into Nirvikalpaka Samadhi, external, using an external support, Nirvikalpaka Samadhi, we drop both the object and the Vedantic text. So these are the six techniques. Now, the result of all of this. In traditional texts, after the practices, the result is mentioned. What is to be gained from all of this? And we know what we are looking for, enlightenment. And so that is described in verse number 30 and 31. So, 30. Deha bhimane galite Deha bhimane galite Vijyate paramatmani Vijyate paramatmani Yatra yatra mano yati Yatra yatra mano yati Tatra tatra samadhayaha Tatra tatra samadhayaha a very interesting verse, which says, as we keep practicing these six techniques, as we devote time and energy to these six techniques, our knowledge gets stabilized. What knowledge? The awareness that we are the witness consciousness. The awareness that everything that we experience in the world is pure existence with an overlay of name and form. Pure existence is there in everything in this, in this universe. And that pure existence outside and the pure awareness, witness, consciousness within is one and the same reality. So this becomes more and more stable. We become more and more aware of it. I am reminded of, I think I've told this earlier, but it bears repetition. What happens if we practice and what happens if we do not practice? Um, by a study, careful reflection on these Advaitic truths, one may come to a discernment that we are the witness consciousness quite apart from this body and mind. But after that, unless that is assimilated, unless that becomes a part of our life, unless that becomes a reality, what will happen is this. I remember about um, um, a decade ago in Haridwar, in India, I was attending a class of um, a teacher, a non-dualist teacher, a traditional Swami in the Himalayas. And uh, his, one of his disciples had just had an operation, a kidney transplant or something major. And then he was telling the Swami that uh, I have got so many dietary restrictions and so many medicines that I have to take. The Swami was a little surprised. So you've already got this new organ. And uh, so why do you need to, now why do you need to follow this strict dietary restrictions and this, all these medicines, why do you need to take all these drugs? Well, the, the gentleman explained, Swami, it's like this. If I do not take all these precautions and all these medicines and all this strict diet, what will happen is this new organ which has been introduced into my body, it will not be integrated with my body. That will be number one. My body will not accept it as its own part, number one. Number two, 
I shall not get the benefit from this organ. It will not start functioning. Number three, finally, my body will reject it. The organ will die. The new organ will die. So if I do not take all the precautions, the transplanted organ will not be integrated with the body. I will not get the benefit from the new kidney. And finally, this new kidney will also die. And the Swami was so excited. He said, in Hindi, Aisa hi hai. This is the way it is. Once you get an understanding, once one gets faith in, 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 uh, in the spirit, in God, once one gets an opening in spiritual life, a real conviction that it is so, what should you do? That's not the end of the road. It's the beginning, in fact. One should intensify spiritual practices. That Swami said, once one gets an intuition that one, that Brahman is, I am the witness consciousness. Once that understanding comes through Vedantic study and reflection, one should intensify spiritual practices. Otherwise, he says, what will happen is, what you have intuited, what you have felt, what you have understood, will not be integrated with your personality, number one. Number two, you will not get the benefit from that new knowledge. You will not be able to overcome the challenges, the sorrows and the temptations of life. That knowledge will not help you to overcome the fears and temptations in life. And number three, after some time, that understanding, that intuition, that knowledge will again disappear. It will not become a permanent part of our, uh, it will not come into full-blown realization. It will not be spiritual realization. So, practice of practice is essential. Now, as we practice, what will happen? Identification with this body and mind will dwindle. Deha vimane galite. By mistake, the witness consciousness reflected in the mind as reflected consciousness. I hope you remember, we have studied all this. Pure consciousness is reflected in the mind as reflected consciousness. And we come to think of ourselves as this reflected consciousness. We have no conception, no feeling about the pure consciousness which is being reflected. It's just like a person, if I have a mirror in front of me and I'm looking at the mirror and I see my face in the mirror, if somehow... I actually forget that this is my real face and I think that is my face. And now when the mirror is dirty, I'll feel my face is dirty. When the mirror is cracked, I feel my, my face is getting cracked. Mirror is shiny, I feel my face is shiny. It's a reflected face. It depends on the mirror. It's not your real face. In the same way, we lose sight of the fact that we are pure consciousness and we get identified through the reflected consciousness with our mind and the body. With the mind and the body. And this is what happens. Now, through this process, when we realize ourselves as the pure consciousness, as the witness consciousness, disidentification with the body and mind occurs. It doesn't mean that the body and mind will disappear. The body will still be there, the mind will still be there, and they will do. Body will do bodily things and mind will do mental things. They will go on. Nothing is going to be destroyed there or changed there. But a realization will dawn in the mind that we are not the body, not the mind. Deha vimane galite. Vijyate paramatmani. We realize ourselves to, the, to be the witness consciousness which is non-different from, which is not different from Brahman, Paramatma, the, the Lord himself, which is one with Brahman. The very idea, I am Brahman, aham brahmasmi. That will become more and more strong. That pure consciousness, that witness consciousness, admits of no limit. 
It is not limited in space, it's not limited in time, nor is it limited to one individual. Vigyate Paramatmani, we realize, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. And then we can sing like Shankaracharya, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham Shivoham. Then what will happen? A most interesting thing will happen. Yatra Yatra Mano Yati Tatra Tatra Samadhaya. The mind will continue to function. The body will continue to function. After that, whatever you do in life, you go on doing the things which you were doing earlier in life. Every action will be the same as samadhi. You don't have to sit in the lotus position. You can. You can sit in the lotus position with eyes closed and meditate within. Or you need not. You can walk, you can talk, you can go to your... You can drive on, <laughs> and you can go to your office... You can have a family. Everything can go on as it was going on. But everywhere, in every thought, in every action, in every word you speak, the, the reality, Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, will shine forth. That is samadhi. Being aware of the spiritual reality is samadhi. After all, what is the goal of samadhi? To be aware of the ground of this illusion. I'm using, I'm translating a Sanskrit term into English. To be aware of the ground of illusion. What does it mean? When you are aware of the rope, the snake cannot delude you anymore. The snake, the rope which we were mistaking for a snake, when the, that delusion will go away only when you be become aware of the reality, the ground of that snake, which is the rope. The rope in which the snake was appearing. So the ground of this world appearance is Brahman. When we become aware of that as I am Brahman, it will no longer delude. And that is the purpose of all spiritual practices including Samadhi. In every action, whatever you think, whatever you see in this world outside. Now don't ask how, how is that possible. That's what all the six techniques are about. Converting every thought, every perception and every object in the world as an occasion for becoming aware of Brahman. It's like saying, it's like asking, by seeing which wave will I be able to see water? Which wave in the Pacific Ocean? There are thousands and thousands of waves. By seeing which wave, which wave should I concentrate on to see water? Any wave. Any wave at all. So, or even a better example. What should I see to be aware that I have eyes? By seeing what will I become, will I know that I've got eyes? The first reaction is people will say, well, look at yourself in the mirror, you will know you've got eyes. Foolish answer. By seeing anything, the very fact that I am seeing means that I've got eyes. If I did not, I couldn't be able to see it. I wouldn't be able to see anything. So the very fact that we have conscious experiences shows that you are that consciousness. Yatra yatra mano yati tatra tatra samadhaya. So here you see, you may sit down in a lotus position and meditate, you will find pure consciousness within that you are pure consciousness. Or you may open your eyes and act in the world. In every action you will find Brahman. That which we chant from the Gita before every meal in our centers. Brahmarpanam Brahmavi, Brahmagno Brahmanautam, Brahmevatena Gantabhyam, Brahmakarma Samadhina. It means that um, last time I also explained that in a ritual, in a Vedic fire ritual, there was a ladle in which they offered 
the offerings into the fire. Now it, it means that the ladle is Brahman. It's not a ladle, it's Brahman. The offering which you pour into the fire, the priest pours into the fire, that offering is Brahman. The fire is Brahman. The one who is pouring it also Brahman. Now what's the point? The point is, if you can do this for every action, any action that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, it can, it can be a secular action, it need not be a religious action. Any kind of work that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, you can see it as Brahman. The people who are involved in that work, the instruments which you use, the place where you do that work, and the you who are doing that work, all of it is pure existence, Brahman. If you do that, you have got Samadhi. One who does this, one who sees Brahman in all the factors involved in action, this is called Brahma Karma, or the person is called Brahma Karma Samadhi, the person who has attained Samadhi in action, seeing Brahman everywhere. 31st. Again, the result. The result of such a state is enlightenment. What is that enlightenment? Vidyate Hridaya Granthi Vidyate Hridaya Granthi Chidyante Sarvasamshaya Chidyante Sarvasamshaya Kshiyante Chasya Karmani Shiyante chasya karmani tasmindrishte paravare. The realization, enlightenment that is described here. Now this is a famous mantra in Vedanta. This is a direct quotation from the Mundaka Upanishad. From one of the Upanishads, Mundaka Upanishad is a direct quotation. It describes enlightenment. It describes freedom while living in this life itself. What does it mean? At that stage, what happens? Bhidyate hridaya granthi. The knots of the heart are rent, are cut asunder. Chidyante sarvasamshaya. All doubts are gone forever. All doubts are gone forever. Kshiyante chasya karmani. The massive load of karma, storehouse of karma, which you have gathered for life after life, all of that disappears, is destroyed. Tasmin drishte paravare. Upon realizing that supreme self. Now let's go a little bit deeper into it. The reason why the author quotes it here is, he shows, he could have composed a, a verse himself. Instead of doing that, he quotes directly from the Upanishad gives the, the, what we call Shruti Pramana, uh, a proof, a direct quotation from the Upanishads, showing that he is interpreting the Upanishads. It, it's a, the Vedanta, the Upanishads themselves say what he is talking about. Now, the knot of the heart is rent or cut. This is not open heart surgery. What is meant here is heart, Shankaracharya explains, heart here means Buddhi, the inner sense, our, our mind, our intellect. Buddhi, the intellect. Ignorance is there in our mind. Knowledge dawns in the mind and destroys ignorance. Where darkness is, there light comes and destroys darkness. Ignorance is in the mind, knowledge dawns in the mind and destroys ignorance. Ignorance is called the knot in the heart. Heart means here 
the inner sense, the mind and the intellect. So the ignorance, that is the not, um, heart here means the mind or the intellect, and there, because of this knowledge which we have gained, that ignorance is destroyed forever. Ignorance is destroyed. And as a result, what happens? Chidyante sarvasamshaya. All doubts are gone forever. Once you see this, once you get this insight, nothing can delude you anymore. Nothing can delude you anymore. It will never go away either. It will never go away. It's interesting. Um, once we were discussing this among the Swamis in Haridwar about the practice of this knowledge, the six techniques which we are discussing, about Nididhyasana, and a Vedantic uh, reflection, um, Vedantic meditation. And one of the Swamis said to the teacher, well, at least I have to hold on to the thought that I am Brahman. I must at least hold on to the awareness that I am Brahman. I must think that I am Brahman, I am Brahman. That, that much thought must be there. And the teacher said, in Hindi he said, Vahi to nahi karna hai. That is what you should never do. And we were all mystified. Why not? Because, he says, imagine an actor who comes on the stage to play a part. So maybe the actor is playing a part of a beggar on the, in, in a... In a, uh, in a theatrical performance and he comes on stage and plays the part very well now does the actor have to keep thinking in his mind let me keep remembering that I'm an actor I'm not a beggar I'm an actor I'm not a beggar because in just in case I forget I'll become a beggar <laughs> he doesn't he has absolutely no fear of that in fact he, he shouldn't think that he's an actor and not a beggar he should think with 110% effort that I am a beggar and this is how I am acting. That's how his acting will be very good. Because the reason is that acting is something that he superimposes upon himself. It's imagination. It's held together by effort. And that he is an actor, Mr. So-and-so, a dramatist, an actor in, in theatre, that is knowledge. He doesn't have to put any effort for, to remember that. It's always avail available. Holy Mother was once asked, Ma Sharada, do you remember your real nature? And she said, no, uh, my child, how can I carry on the day-to-day -day activities if I did so? But it is always available to me, whenever I want, immediately. So, knowledge is like that. It is without any doubt, without any doubt. One of the Vedanta teachers put it rather humorously. You see, the difference between a person who is enlightened and the other person who has attended a few Vedanta classes. The difference between this will be this. Um, imagine a person who has read about milk and heard about milk but never seen milk. And then somebody talks to him about milk, asks him, do you know about milk? Yeah, I know. Um, what do you know? Well, it comes from cows and it is white. And you can drink it and it tastes like this. I know all about it. Then the other person mischievously tells this man that you are right but partially right. You don't know the whole story about milk. You're right that milk is white but only when it comes from white cows. <laughs> milk, when it comes from, from uh, red cows, it is red when chocolate cows and it's chocolate. <laughs> From 
black cows, it is black. Now this person is quite likely to be confused. He seems it's, yeah, it's pretty reasonable. Maybe what I read was meant, was meant only for white cows. Because after all, a brown cow and a red cow and a black cow will give brown milk and a red milk and a black milk. It's reasonable. But the person who has seen milk and has drunk, uh, drinks the milk and, as Sri Ramakrishna says, has drunk that milk and become strong, he will never, be have, never have any doubt at all. Let anybody give any kind of reasoning. Red cow, black cow, doesn't matter. I'm reminded of a joke, not pertinent, but it's so funny. <laughs> because of tremendous competition in the, in the kindergarten stage, children are also interviewed. There are whole panels for admitting. So I, I know it's true in India. So if you want to admit the child to a, an elite school, a kindergarten school, the parents will be interviewed and the child also, the little kid will be interviewed by all these grown-up, this teacher and the principal of the school and the psychologist, child psychologist and all these things. Well, sometimes the kids get better off the interview panel. So there's a little kid, it seems it's a true story, a professor of um, management told me this story. Um, he said that this, in this particular case the child was asked by the school psychologist, can you tell me how does a white cow eating green grass give, how does a black cow eating green grass give white milk? A black cow eating green grass gives white milk. How does it happen? And the kid immediately replied, he was not at all phased. He said, how do I know? Ask the cow. <laughs> the fact is one who knows what milk is will never be deluded. In the same way, sarva sangshaya chidyante, all doubts are resolved. Once one has got this, you will never ever have any doubts. This is true. Um, then what happens? Kshiyante chasya karmani. All karmas are destroyed. Karma means the results of our past karmas, the karmas which are stored up. You see, the Philosophy is that our bodies are produced because of our karma. We live these lives because of our past karma. We are getting the results of our past karma. And as long as there is a storehouse of karma, we will be born again and again and again. But when that storehouse of karma is destroyed because of this realization, then there will be no more rebirth. The reason why realizing the true nature of Brahman sets us free from the cycle of birth and death is because the, the, the realization simultaneously destroys all the karmas. The karmas are products of ajnana, ignorance, and ignorance is destroyed by that knowledge. Since the root cause is de destroyed, the material is destroyed, the effect, the karma falas are also destroyed. Now here, there is a lot of discussion, a lot of sophisticated philosophical discussion. You see, the question will immediately arise, if all karmas are destroyed, Karmas are of three types, Agami, Sanchita and Prarabdha. If they are all destroyed, then how does the liberated person, the Jivan Mukta, the enlightened person, how does he or she continue in this body? The body should also die immediately. Because there is the body is sustained by karma. So how does he continue? And there are a lot of discussions. One theory is that um, there is a theory of um, Prarabdha Karma, Lesha Vidya, resulting in the continuation of prarabdha karma. I'm not going to explain all those technical terms. What it means is, 
Of the three types of karma, all the stored karmas, agami and sanjita, are destroyed. And that karma which has started giving results in the form of this life and this body, that will go on till it is exhausted. So that accounts for the continuation of the life of the enlightened person. And that's a good thing for us, trust me. Because if that didn't happen, if all enlightened persons died, then who would teach us? Then all the teachers would be unenlightened. Because if enlightenment is equivalent to death, first of all, it wouldn't be a very attractive proposition. <laughs> there are easier ways of committing suicide. <laughs> enlightenment does not mean death. Um, as long as prarabdha karma remains, the body will continue. Now, there are a lot of discussions about this. But since this is an introductory course, we will not go into those intricate discussions. Uh, only note that the continuation of the prarabdha karma, the continuation of the karma which produced this body, will not affect the liberated person. Does not affect the liberated person. It will affect his or her body. So a disease may come and the person may get sick. But that person always retains the ability to rise above that sickness and the pain and transcend that suffering. That's the difference between an enlightened person and a not so enlightened person. The other person will suffer and this enlightened person can transcend that suffering. Transcend is a word I'm using carefully because it's not that enlightenment is an anesthesia. It's not a painkiller. If you're enlightened so that there'll be no pain, there will be pain but the person also clearly knows that I am the witness of this body which, which is suffering pain. Many examples are there. In Sri Ramakrishna's life, when he was suffering from cancer, uh, one famous example I've quoted, where Hari Maharaj, Turiyanandaji comes, Hari Maharaj comes and says, how are you today? And Sri Ramakrishna says, he had a throat cancer. There's a lot of pain here. I cannot eat. Weekly, he says, I cannot eat anything. There's a lot of pain here. And Hari, I don't know what got into him, said, but sir, I see that you are in great bliss. That's a cruel thing to say to a person suffering in, with, from cancer. And Sri Ramakrishna burst into laughter. He said, well, the rascal has caught me out. He has found me out. So he could do that. Once um, uh, Swami Advaitananda was nursing Sri Ramakrishna, who was towards the end of his life, suffering from throat cancer. And he used to clean the wound in the throat of Sri Ramakrishna with neem leaves. So it's an antiseptic. But because it was an open wound, it would hurt terribly. So once he was going to do that, and Sri Ramakrishna gasped in pain. And then this person who was doing that, he said, well, if it hurts you, if it's so painful, then I won't do it anymore. And Sri Ramakrishna said, wait, wait. Let me lift my mind from the body. And the next moment he says, now you can do it. And he did it and Sri Ramakrishna lay there absolutely calmly, smiling serenely. Now they can do it because they know clearly that I am not this body and mind. They can transcend. And many other such uh, examples are there. So, Prarabdha karma will continue but it will not affect the enlightened person. The Jivan Mukta, the living while uh, enlightened while living, will not be affected by the Prarabdha Karma. When the body dies finally, the enlightened person is already Brahman, remains as Brahman. Already being free is freed. I'm translating from the Upanishad. 
And the unenlightened person, when the body dies, it transmigrates. What happens is the subtle body leaves the dead, gross body and goes to other worlds and then other bodies and goes to new, newer lives. But for the enlightened person, there are no more new lives. It remains as Brahman. There's one word here should be explained, paravare, the high and the low, the, the transcendent and the immanent. Literally it means, para means the transcendent Brahman. In Sanskrit, nirguna Brahman. Avara means the immanent Brahman. In Sanskrit, Saguna Brahman. Brahman with attributes, Brahman without attributes. So the one word is used to indicate both, Paravare. Showing thereby, it is the same reality, which is the Nirguna Brahman in Advaita Vedanta, which is worshipped as God in religion. With attributes, it becomes the God of religion. Beyond attributes, it becomes the Nirguna Brahman of non-dual Vedanta. Now, with the 31st verse, the text is more or less complete. The traditional text will give the practices and then the results and then come to a conclusion. And the results have been given here and then it should, logically it should come to an end. But something funny has been done in this text. You see, it starts all over again. Uh, there are actually 14 more verses. It's almost like a postscript which the author has added onto it. Um, I have heard that there are versions of this book, Drigdrishya Viveka, which end at 31. But uh, we have the other verses here also, up to 46. So we shall do them. Uh, before we go into that, let me tell you what he has done. He has done, he has added these 14 extra verses as a sort of revision enabling us to go over the material which we have studied, but in a different way. It's quite an interesting presentation. What he has done in the next 14 verses is pretty interesting. It's interesting in this way. It answers a vital question. Some of you may have come across that question. Anyway, I'll tell you. You see, you know, this class has gathered quite an online following. So a lot of people all over the world are watching this, not directly, but on the YouTube uploads. And many people write, with very interesting questions. Unfortunately, I have uh, no uh, occasion to answer all of that. It will be impossible to reply to all of those emails. But one question which has come more than once is this question. If we are really Brahman, if we are really Brahman, then who is the one who is in bondage? Who is struggling to get out of bondage? And who is the one who gets liberation? What, who is the one who goes from birth to birth? Body dies and then goes elsewhere. Brahman does not go anywhere. Brahman is one and the same. So if we are Brahman, then, then who is it that is in, in, uh, in bondage? Brahman is never in bondage. Who is it that is in bondage? Who is struggling for liberation? So basically the question is about the nature of the jiva. What is the jiva? Jiva means individual being, you or I. Right now, what are we actually? If we are really Brahman, then what are we right now? What is this? That is the question. What is the nature of the jiva, nature of the individual being which we experience ourselves to be right now? So answering this question, the, um, the author has written 14 more verses and given us a new way of dealing with this whole idea which we have been studying, a new paradigm, a new structure. Quite interesting. Let me start the 32nd verse and I'll tell you in brief what's going to happen. 
ಅವಚ್ಛಿನ್ನಶ್ಚಿದಾಸ ಅವಚ್ಛಿನ್ನಚಿದಾಸ ತೃತೀಯ ಸ್ವಪ್ನ ಕಲ್ಪಿತ ತೃತೀಯ ಸ್ವಪ್ನ ಕಲ್ಪಿತ ವಿಜ್ಞೇಯ ಸ್ತ್ರಿವಿಧೋ ಜೀವ ವಿಜ್ಞೇಯ ಸ್ತ್ರಿವಿಧೋ ಜೀವ ತತ್ರಾದ್ಯ ಪಾರಮಾರ್ಥಿಕ ತತ್ರಾದ್ಯ ಪಾರಮಾರ್ಥಿಕ he says conceive of the individual in three ways conceive of yourself in three ways one is the witness consciousness the witness consciousness the other one is the reflection of that witness consciousness in the mind in the waking state the third one is the reflection of that witness consciousness in the, in the mind in the dream state so we have got three conceptions of ourselves one is the witness witness consciousness sakshi witness consciousness which we have studied about all all the while here the witness consciousness that's number one that's what who we really are the second one is right now what we see ourselves to be right now what is this a reflection of that witness consciousness in the mind the consciousness which we feel in the mind what consciousness people are looking mystified the consciousness which is making you look mystified just now that very consciousness we are not talking about any metaphysical speculation we are talking about hard experience which everybody has all the time the consciousness which we feel just now that is the second that is the first reflected consciousness second type of jiva individual the first reflected consciousness he speaks about a second reflected consciousness what we experience in dreams in dreams what happens we go to sleep we forget that we are sleeping then we imagine a world and we are in that world and we we don't even think that we are imagining it it seems real so we are in a world we have a body a dream body and we are interacting with persons and there is a world the whole thing is a dream and in the dream we have consciousness in the dream we have consciousness do we not we have conscious experiences in the dream that is called the second reflected consciousness So what do we have one original witness consciousness one reflected consciousness in waking stage and the second reflected consciousness in dream stage the second and the third one reflected consciousness in waking stage we are aware of reflected consciousness in dream state we are aware of more or less every day we dream and we we are aware of that the first one is what the book is trying to teach us so he makes these categories now what does he say let's see now we can easily understand there are three conceptions of the jiva the individual consciousness limited by the um, by the internal instrument that is by the mind that's number 1 the witness of the mind number 2 reflected in the mind in the waking state number 3 reflected in the mind in the dream state the first one may not have been clear what i said just now you see it's like this take the mirror example again i have a mirror and i am being reflected in the mirror my face is being reflected in the mirror the face which is being reflected in the mirror is the witness consciousness the reflected face in the mirror is the first reflected consciousness the face which is being reflected in the mirror is what is called avachinna chaitanya i'll translate the sanskrit it's called 
the consciousness delimited, that will be the technical term, delimited by the mind. Now, I don't want to use the technical term because delimited by the mind or limited by the mind seems like the pure consciousness is being limited in some sense. It's not limited. It's just, that, just the one which is being reflected. It's just like when I have a mirror in front of me, my face is being reflected in the mirror. And if I call my face, original face, the original which is being reflected in the mirror, in that sense. The original witness consciousness which is being reflected in the mind. So that is the only limitation they are speaking about here. Now he says, these are three conceptions of the individual. Tatra Adya Paramarthika. The first one is the real consciousness, is the absolute consciousness, is Brahman. Which is the first one? The witness, the Sakshi, the witness. The one which we found in the very first verse. The eyes are the seer, the form is the scene. The eyes become the scene and the mind is the seer. Mind becomes the scene and the witness is the seer. That witness, that is none other than Brahman. That is pure consciousness, that is Brahman. That is eternally unchanging. The reality which you are, that's one. That's the absolute reality. Here let me add a short note on the three levels of reality. Advaita Vedanta has a special feature. They speak of different levels of reality. Truly speaking, in Advaita Vedanta, the only reality is Brahman. Existence, consciousness, bliss. Existence, consciousness, bliss. Everything else is an appearance, is false. But the problem is, we do not inhabit that. Our experienced world, the world of our experience, is this world. Where we see ourselves as bodies and minds who drive up to the Hollywood temple and attend a Vedanta class. We do not see ourselves as Brahman, exi infinite existence, consciousness, please. We do not see that. We inhabit this world. It may or may not be false. Vedanta says it's false. But this is what we take to be real. In order to help us, Vedanta gives a sort of provisional reality to this world. This world is called Vyavaharika Satyam, the relative reality. The empirical rea reality. I might even call it the pragmatic reality. Pragmatic in the philosophical sense. So, Vyavaharika Satyam. What is Vyavaharika Satyam? This world which we are experiencing right now. This transactional world. And Brahman itself, pure consciousness, existence, bliss, that is called Paramarthika Satyam. The absolute reality. Absolute reality, Brahman. Empirical reality, what we are experiencing now. Relative reality or empirical reality. And there is a third level of reality. Our dreams. When we go to sleep and when we dream, the dreams are, we know they are false. When we wake up, we say, oh, it was a dream. I am in, uh, in Hollywood. But I dreamt I was in Delhi or in some other place. Where I wake up and say, oh, that was a dream. So something you recognize to be false in this waking state itself. That is called the third, the lowest level of reality called Pratibhasika Satyam. Technical term Pratibhasika. Literally Pratibhasika means appearance. That which is not real yet appears. So three levels of reality. Really real, Brahman. Practically real, transactionally real, our world. And sometimes appears to be real and we soon realize it's not real. That is Pratibhasika Satyam, our dreams, uh, illusions, um, you, by mistake you see a snake in a rope, 
that snake is pratibhasika and the rope is vyavaharika absolutely good so you have <laughs> that was a, in an impromptu quiz the rope is vyavaharika transactional reality but in reality everything is supposed to be brahman that is the uh, so the three tiers three levels of reality which advaita vedanta speaks about absolute reality relative reality and the level of illusion or appearance now see the first jiva the witness is absolute reality the witness witness consciousness absolute reality the first reflected consciousness in the waking state state is vyavaharika transactional reality and the reflected consciousness in the dream state pratibhasika appearance appearance another point let me make the appearance is resolved into each lower level of reality is resolved into the next higher level of reality let me repeat the lower level of reality is resolved into the next higher level of reality so when we see a snake by mistake the snake is false when we realize oh it's a rope what happened to the snake it was realized to be nothing other than a rope so the pratibhasika was resolved into the vyavaharika the illusory level of reality is resolved into the practical or the the transactional level of reality empirical reality and upon enlightenment here is the in, insight upon enlightenment what happens is the empirical level of reality this reality is resolved into the absolute reality the vyavaharika is resolved into the paramarthika we basically realize i am not that face reflected in the mirror i am this so that is what happens in enlightenment the vyavaharika is resolved into the paramarthika empirical reality this universe this body and mind all are realized to be none other than pure existence consciousness bliss satchidananda that is what is now will it will come up now the author sort of dug a hole for himself by saying the ultimate reality is the one limited by the mind immediately question will come how can a limited reality be brahman not be ultimate so he will have to answer that in the 33rd verse we'll just read that and i'll stop for questions avacheda kalpitasyad avacheda kalpitasyad avachedyam tu vastavam avachedyam tu vastavan tasmin jeevatvamaropad tasmin jeevatvamaropad ब्रह्मत्वं तु स्वभावतः ब्रह्मत्वं तु स्वभावतः वेरी सिंपल ही सेज दैट व्हिच लिमिट्स दैट्स इमेजिनरी दैट इज इमेजिन्ड दैट इज नेम एंड फॉर्म ओनली दैट व्हिच इज लिमिटेड इज रियल सो द इमेजिनरी कैन नेवर लिमिट द रियल व्हाट इज ही मीन बाय ऑल ऑफ दिस it's like you see the desert and the middle of the desert you see an oasis of water so now the desert has a particular area where there's no desert it's water but when you go and close and see the seats a mirage 
there is no real water. Now, did the mirage water actually limit the desert? Did the mirage water actually limit the desert? No. It seemed like desert plus water. This part is desert and the rest of it is water. But when you go close, you see all of it is desert only. There is no water there. So the imaginary can never limit the desert. The imaginary can never limit the real. The commentator says, even a grain of sand cannot be made wet by the water of the mirage. It looks like a big lake. It cannot wet a single grain of the sand of the desert. So it cannot affect the real. The lower level of reality cannot affect the higher level of reality. The snake does not make the rope poisonous. The imaginary snake. The imaginary water of the desert cannot wet a single grain of the sand of the desert. In the same way, an imaginary body and mind do not actually limit Brahman. Brahman exists as pure existence, consciousness, bliss, right now, right here, forever. Not affected by our world of appearances, our world which, in which we live and work and suffer and enjoy. This world of birth and death. It does not affect Brahman. Well, it may not affect Brahman. I am getting plenty affected, you might say. No, you as Brahman, you also do not get affected as Brahman. So he says, the limiting factor being imaginary, that which is limited is real, and hence it is not really limited. It's jivatvam. Brahman appears as a jiva, as an individual, that is superimposed, it's not real. It's Brahmanness. It's a play on words, I mean, he's actually should not say Brahmanness, but it's being Brahman is real. Appearing as a jiva is false. Being Brahman is real. So that's what he mentions here. So how does that answer our question? Our question was, what is the nature of the jiva? Who is struggling for liberation? Who is the one who enjoys and suffers and comes over to the Vedanta class and attends a Vedanta class? Who is this? Now you can precisely answer. It is that reflected consciousness number one. The, you, the pure consciousness, reflected in that mind in the waking state, that's what we are right now. And if we really understand this, we'll see it's just, he's just repeating facts back to us. Just repeating facts back to us. It's exactly what our situation is right now. I, the pure consciousness, reflected in this mind, and due to the effect of Maya forgetting that I am pure consciousness, I only know myself as consciousness in this mind, and I am, at, I am identified with this body, and hence I interact with this world. So this is my life. What Vedanta tries to show me is that this is a mirror. The consciousness you feel is a reflection in the mirror. You are that which is being reflected in the mirror. Eternally free of the mirror and its reflection. Right now. So that's what they are trying to say. Um, should we take some questions? Any questions today? Yes, there's a question there. Yes. Um, who interprets the dream? Uh, can you have somebody else interpret the dream for you, or is there a way to do that yourself? Is there a sort of a philosophical approach to that? Interpreting a dream. So, question is: Let me get it right. Uh, are you talking about inter 
Yes. Yes. All right. The question is, when you wake up from a dream, how do you interpret it in your life? In Advaita Vedanta, this is a thing to grasp. Whenever a dream example is used, immediately our natural reaction is to um, be concerned with what we experienced in the dream. So is it false? Is it true? Uh, does it have any implication for my life in the waking state? That's what we are interested in. What is the meaning of the dreams? Earlier people used to use dreams as prophecies, foretelling something in the future. Nowadays not so much. Nowadays people go to the psychoanalyst. or Even that has gone out of fashion. That used to happen a few decades ago. You go to the psychoanalyst and you tell him uh, your dreams and he'll make some sense out of it. What Advaita Vedanta is interested in is something entirely different. It doesn't matter what we have dreamt about. What Advaita Vedanta is interested in is two things. First of all, that which we dreamt about, dreams are false. Immediately another question comes. No, Swami, dreams can be true. I have seen, I dreamt of something and it happened in my life. Be careful, we are doing philosophy here. You have to be very precise. When you say, I dreamt of something and it happened in my life, I dreamt I was going to meet my long-lost friend and lo and behold, next morning he had come to meet me. So it, it is true. But be careful. If in your dream you met your long-lost friend and you woke up and your friend came, did you meet your friend twice? No. I heard this story um, of a person who got a present who, you know, who prophesied that such and such person is coming today from Japan and will bring me a pair of slippers from Japan. And uh, I'm not revealing the names because Swami knows who it is. And, and uh, the other person said, who's coming from Japan and why would they bring you a pair? You know, I went to Japan and then I, I purchased a pair of slippers. You were sleeping, you were dreaming. No, it's true. After some time, a person did arrive from Japan and said, well, Swami, here I've got a pair, I, well, I don't know what to get for you, I've got this pair of comfy slippers, exactly what he had predicted. He had predicted that I went to Japan last night and I got a pair of slippers and next morning somebody actually comes from Japan on the, <laughs> and, and brings him a pair. So you'll say, oh, the dreams turned out to be true. Well, if dreams had been true, you would have got two pairs of slippers. <laughs> one which he found in his dream and one which came in in the waking state. No. What you mean by dreams being true is it has some predictive capacity. Something was seen in a dream and that seemed to happen in, a, in, the, in the waking state. But Advaita is not interested in that. Advaita is interested in the fact that what happens in a dream is seen to be false upon waking up. It did not happen. It may happen in the waking state, then it will take it to be real. But in the dream, it's a dream. More importantly, what Advaita Vedanta is interested in is the consciousness which is aware of that dream. Advaita is not interested in the dream. Advaita is interested in the dreamer. Yeah, there's a question there. Yeah. This is actually the this is a central question of this book. 
it's very interesting. Take two thoughts. Say, uh, you take the thought, thought that uh, Sacramento is the capital of California. It's a thought. And California is on the west coast. That's another thought. Two thoughts. One thought came and it went away. The second thought came and it went away. And each thought, the thoughts are different from each other. One is about the capital of California, one is about the geographical location of California. Two thoughts, two different thoughts. But both of them arose in the same mind, they were illumined by the same consciousness. Thoughts are different. What is common to the, you experience two thoughts. So that each experience is different. What is common to the two experiences? Or let me put it this way. You are looking at that light, the chandelier. You look at it, yes. And then you hear a sound. Yes. That experience of seeing the light, this experience of hearing the sound, they are two different experiences. One is sight, one is hearing, one came before, one came afterwards. They are two different experiences. But what is common to both of them? That which was experiencing. That which was experiencing. It's, I can make it even more simple. Consider the example of the microphone and the book. They're two objects. They're different from each other. But both are shining in the same light. The, light. the light which illumines the microphone is the same light which illumines the book. In the same way, there is an unchanging light within us which shines upon different objects externally, different thoughts in our mind and gives us the experience of our life, gives us this movie which we call our lives. That light, unchanging light, is consciousness. In Panchadashi, written by Vidyaranya Swami, we find Shabdas Parshadayo Vedya Vaichitriya Jagare Prithak Tato Vibhakta Tatsamvid Aikarupyat Nabhidyate What does it mean? Sounds. Throughout the day we hear so many sounds. Touch. We touch so many things, we taste so many things, we see so many things throughout the day. Hundreds and hundreds of experiences. Each is different from the other. Each comes and goes. Apart from all of them is the one unchanging consciousness. He calls it Samvit. The consciousness which illumines a sound, the consciousness which illumines your sight, it's the same consciousness. The sound and the thing seen are different from each other. Only thing is, don't try to make that consciousness an object. You see, our problem is, we, everything that we experience is an object. Everything that we experience is an object. Everything in the universe. So when they try to teach us about religion, God, that also we think is an object. God. Now the problem about teaching us about consciousness is this. Whatever we, the teacher or the books tell us about consciousness, we tend to make it an object. How shall I understand consciousness? When you ask this, you ask, how shall I understand consciousness? You are thinking in terms of making consciousness an object of your understanding. It can never be the object of your understanding. The very first verse of this book said, the witness never becomes the witnessed. 
The best way to understand this is the example which I really like is the one I gave earlier. Eyes. How do I know the table is there and the microphone is there and you are sitting there? Because I see it. I see you. I see the book. I see the microphone. How do I know that I have got eyes? The problem here is I cannot see my eyes. You may say that you can see it in a mirror. I can only see the reflection of my eyes in a mirror. This eyes cannot directly see themselves. The eyes cannot directly see themselves. Then how do I know that I have got eyes? By seeing anything. Seeing anything. Whatever we see is a proof that I have got eyes. That's the only way I can know that I have got eyes. So that consciousness is understood by experience. Experience of what? Anything. The proof that you are here for me, the proof that you are here is because I see you. So seeing the object is the proof that the object exists for me. But then how do I prove that the eyes exist? I cannot see the eyes. It's only the very act, the experience of seeing which proves that the eyes exist. Experience of seeing anything. So the conscious experience, experience, any experience proves consciousness. In fact, a very beautiful, okay, we'll come to you and conclude with that beautiful definition of Brahman, the ultimate reality is, catch this, the beautiful definition of Brahman, Anubhava Matram Param Brahma. Pure experience is Brahman. What do you mean by pure experience? Is there an impure experience? From any experience, every experience is an experience of an object. Drop the object, you have got Brahman. Which object? Whatever you are experiencing, drop it, you have got Brahman. Alright, last question. All right, and that's a good question. The question is, is there a real point in becoming enlightened? Other than, of course, not being born and not dying, um, not going through the cycle of birth and death. But even, you know, the cycle of birth and death, that's also a bit theological. It's only when you believe in the entire theology of the Hindus or Buddhists or Jains, the Indic religions, they speak about many lives. And that's also so distant. Past lives... Maybe. I don't have any direct memory. Future lives, who knows? So they say the past, somebody said, the past is a cancelled check. Future is a promissory note. <laughs> the present is all that you have. So how does it help me now? That's the question. How does enlightenment help me now? The real purpose of all of this, let us not forget, what is the real purpose of Vedanta? The real purpose of Vedanta in Sanskrit, let me put it, Complete transcendence of all sorrow and suffering and attainment of pure bliss. That is the goal, no less. In fact, all that we are trying to achieve in life, whether in secular life or in religious life or in spirituality, whatever, we are trying to avoid sorrow and get happiness. And they say the only real way of doing this is through enlightenment. You totally, completely transcend suffering. 
I'm using the words very carefully, transcend. Not actually, it's not that it's a painkiller, if you get enlightenment, your pains will go away, or it is a cure for poverty, if you get enlightenment, you will become rich. No. But you transcend all that. They cease to affect you at all. And you discover the source of pure bliss, eternal happiness, which is within ourselves, which is the self which we realize ourselves to be. So that is the purpose. The highest goal of human life is achieved through this. There is a, there is a saying, in, there is a beautiful verse in the Panchadashi, oh, there are so many questions coming. Um, the beautiful verse in Panchadashi which says that, why is an enlightened person so happy? Why are they so joyous, the mystics of the world? They are joyous because they have done what is to be done in human life. They have got what is to be got in human life. They have known what is to be known in human life. They have got something where the greatest of sorrows cannot shake them. They have got something greater than which they can never get. There's nothing to be gained greater than that. Last question. Yes. All right. Yeah, let's. So let me answer this in briefly, in two sentences. One is, what is the purpose of all of this? The purpose of all of this is, in Swami Vivekananda's words, the goal is to manifest the divinity within ourselves, to recognize uh, the, our spiritual reality. To come to this realization is the goal of this game of life. That's one. And the second thing is about meaning and teleology and evolution. In the materialist, reductionist approach, the whole universe is devoid of meaning. Even the best of them, as recently reading a book called The Big Picture by Sean Carroll, who is a physicist in Caltech. Even there, the best that he can do is to say that we have to manufacture meaning for ourselves. He does not deny that meaning is important, but meaning is to be manufactured by us. There is no meaning in the universe as such. So that's the physicalist, materialist approach. It's just the mirror image. Vedanta is just the opposite. Here, everything is imbued with meaning because nothing is other than Brahman. Nothing is other than your inner self. So at every step, there is meaning in this approach. We'll conclude with that and we'll take it up in the next two classes. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Raparnamastu